Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. The New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream waters. This land is made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 375, recorded on Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as usual, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. So this week on the bonus episode, we are following up on our main episode discussion, which was on the 1921 Emergency Quota Act in the 1910 census. And today we're following that with a discussion of the 1920 census, which is fascinating for a whole bunch of reasons, some of which are going to be related to the previous topic and some of which are going to be sort of new points. So while the 1920 census featured various domestic milestones and trends in urbanization, it was also conducted in the immediate aftermath of World War One, in which the census takers tried to ascertain where immigrants had come from, sometimes years or decades prior to the war, based on the current locations of still shifting borders, the emergence of new countries, and the disappearance of others. The 1920 census, in some circumstances, asked for specific locations like cities or towns, not just countries of origin, and also attempted to make ethnic or racial classifications of both immigrants and their American-born children, despite these rapidly shifting and difficult-to-pin-down geographic and political situations. If we count some of the countries later retaken by the Soviet during or after the Russian Civil War, roughly 27 countries were either created or enlarged as part of the settlements after World War I. More than half a dozen countries or successor states lost territory. Notably, some of these changes between 1917 and the mid-1920s after this census was conducted included, among others, the breakup of the Austria-Hungary Empire, including a small Austria, a very small Hungary, and a new Czechoslovakia, along with territorial transfers to a greatly expanded Serbia, later called Yugoslavia. Slavia, and a greatly expanded Romania, as well as, of course, perhaps most prominently, the creation of a new Polish state out of Austrian and Russian partitions of Poland, as well as some of Germany's partition areas. Territorial additions for Italy from the former Austrian territories with some disputed other claims also had occurred, and the temporary or longer-term independence of Baltic states and Caucasus states of the former Russian Empire, such as Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, as well as a short-lived Ukraine set up by the German Empire also had to be factored in during this period and this particular census. And that is to say nothing of the Central Asian regions, which we talked about that Asiatic immigration was heavily restricted already under a previous immigration act that Woodrow Wilson had vetoed and been overridden on. And then as we talked about with the 1921 Quota Act, he pocket vetoed that one and then it got passed uh, and signed under the Harding administration. 
Additionally, again, continuing on with discussions of notable changes uh, between 1917 and the mid-1920s that affected the census were the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and War of Independence by nationalist Turkey against the Allied powers, including a greatly expanded and still expansionist Greece, and that was still ongoing at the time of this census. Uh, New countries or League of Nations mandates like Iraq, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Mandatory Palestine, and more were also being set up, and we are going to circle back to that in a few minutes. Bulgaria lost territory, but that was mostly newly acquired territory anyway, so probably not a huge impact on this census. And Germany's overseas territories in Africa, the Pacific, and China were redistributed to the Allied powers, but this did not really affect the U.S. census much since immigration from those places was already either very restricted or outright prohibited anyway, uh, and had been for quite some time in some cases. Continental Germany itself lost territory to France, Denmark, Poland, and Danzig Free City. And of course, as you know, many, many immigrants living in the United States at this point were from Germany originally. And the U.S. Census that year was conducted on January 1st, earlier than typical, and many of these territorial changes just described had not even happened yet or were still shaking out in the cases of treaties that had been signed but not yet taken effect. Additionally, just before World War I, and I almost forgot this one myself when we were doing the episode prep, in 1912 and 1913, the First and Second Balkan Wars and the Italo-Turkish War had significantly changed the borders several times in the Balkans, and the islands and African territories under Ottoman control, and all of these changes had not been reflected by the 1910 census that preceded them. Greece, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, and Italy had all taken territory either from the Ottomans uh, or from each other. So, how did the 1920 census in the United States attempt to handle this problem of vast territorial changes in new countries compared to the 1910 census that had simply asked country of origin? According to the official historical summary from the Census Bureau website, the 1920 census included four new questions, one asking the year of naturalization and three about the mother tongue, which I would assume probably helped them narrow down in some cases um, beyond just getting some more demographic data. Because of the changes in some international boundaries following World War I, enumerators were instructed to report the province, state, or region or city of persons declaring they or their parents had been born in Austria-Hungary, Germany, Russia, or Turkey, uh, which were respectively of those three of them were major central powers that were on the defeated side and Russia was on the allied side but imploded into civil war. If a person had been born in any other foreign country, only the name of the country was to be entered. And then this goes back to some of the wacky race science that Kelly talked about on the last episode, the determination of race in the 1920 census was based on the enumerator's impressions, which I'm sure was a pretty disastrous way of going about that. Um, But I didn't find a huge amount on that except for some of the specific points that we are going to be talking about in more detail. And uh, this also, of course, ties back to some of the stuff that we had talked about on our episode on Vice President Thomas Marshall Uh, and Woodrow Wilson, uh, and they were in their final year in office when the census was conducted, uh, and then handing off the sort of processing of it and and publication of it to the next administration. Um, But as we talked about on that episode in July of 2020, that's episode 316, Woodrow Wilson was more in the school of thought that felt that eugenics and racism was the new progressive frontier for science and so forth, whereas 
Vice President Thomas Marshall was, he did not consider that to be progressive. He was probably about as close as you could get to being an anti-racist politician, so to speak, for this time period, and took a lot of steps to try to uh, mitigate racism or oppose racism, much of which was being perpetrated by President Wilson. Um, and he was generally sort of cut out of the loop on those kind of decisions. Um, but this was, you know, an ongoing, like, hot topic for the 1920 census, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Um, but it should also be acknowledged that as racist as Wilson was, and as much as he was convinced that the hip progressive thing to do and forward-thinking thing to do was to get really into race science, uh, he did block some of the more overtly racist things around things like the census and the immigration laws and so forth, um, as we just mentioned earlier, in 1917 and in 1920, and was uh, basically thwarted in that effort by Congress, um, which was even more into, uh, quote-unquote, scientific racism at the time. So before we get into uh, some of the other sort of trends, let's stick to this topic around immigration and ethnicity and race and talk a little bit about some of those former Ottoman subjects. So the Ottoman Empire, as we said, broke up into many different parts, and this is where we start to see reclassifications, uh, along with this enthusiasm I've just mentioned for race science, around like, how do we classify Syrians? How do we classify Armenians? How do we classify Lebanese? Now, some of this, as Rachel's about to explain, actually ended up being more along religious lines than anything else. But broadly speaking, this 1920 census was sort of the big, like, race science census, where they started getting really into that uh, in a very dark way. Um, and some of that, incredibly, has stuck around from the 1920 census to present, uh, and leads to some very sort of weird, eccentric things. So, Rachel, could you talk a little bit about uh, the issue around, like, Syrian and Lebanese communities, which were already pretty significant in the United States before 1920 and, the, and before the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, uh, but were a growing population, along with, of course, Arab populations that came in after the breakup, uh, and, you know, they now needed to be reclassified in terms of countries of origin with their new country of origin, so to speak. Yeah, so uh, I looked at a an article from the Journal of American Ethnic History um, titled Becoming White, Race, Religion, and the Foundations of Syrian Lebanese Ethnicity in the United States. So as you mentioned previously, the 1920 census did include a question on year of naturalization. And uh, for uh, the Syrians, this was actually a really fraught question because at this time, um, naturalization was limited to, quote, aliens being free white persons and to aliens of African nativity and to persons of African descent. So there was a debate and um, a lot of legal um, wrangling to kind of decide where Syrians fall in on the spectrum of whiteness. Um, so Syrians, it, it's a broad umbrella term that covered people of what um, would become Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and Jordan. Um, so the whiteness of Syrians was dependent on a number of factors, uh, one being skin color, although the courts themselves said that color wasn't supposed to be a determining factor, oftentimes it was. So uh, 
people who had darker skin color, um, there was a lot more question as to whether they would be allowed to be white and be allowed to be a citizen. Um, another factor was the connection to, quote, Western civilization. So uh, Syrians are Semitic peoples, and um, they were a part of the origin of Western civilization, uh, the origins of Christianity. And so therefore, there was that kind of um, connection that they, they, there was like a philosophical connection. They would be amenable to the tenets of the United States and democracy and whatnot. And they would be, be better able to fit in than, than maybe some other races or ethnicities. Um, and also another factor is religion. So Christian Syrians definitely had an easier time arguing for their whiteness than Muslim Syrians who were um, often called Arabs. So Arab was actually kind of more of a religious moniker rather than an ethnic moniker. Um, According to this article, the, the race science of the time wasn't really used in the courts. Um, rather, it was like congressional intent, like what, what would the fa founding fathers think, and common knowledge um, used as kind of this bar. Uh, so would a man on the street call a Syrian white? Um, however, in typical science cherry-picking fashion, when race science accorded with the judge's views, it was good. And when it didn't, it was bad. So race science could could be relevant, but oftentimes wasn't in favor of those other um, aspects that I talked about. Um, so in the Ottoman state, religion was often used as a way to separate peoples much more than like ethnicities. And so religion was used as a classification system more so than racial classification. And so when the Syrian immigrants came to the United States, they actually brought this kind of paradigm with them. And so religion was often the base for the claim of whiteness. So since Syrian Christian immigrants shared their religion with their new country, they obviously belonged to the country and should be allowed to participate as full citizens. Um, over the years and over like the, the decades of court cases, the case for Syrian whiteness kind of evolved from a positive declaration that they belonged to the white race to kind of a negative declaration that they didn't belong to the quote-unquote colored races, for example, black and Asian. And so they actually deserved all the rights that came with whiteness, such as the ability to become naturalized citizens. Um, and as you mentioned earlier with Armenians, the court decisions for Syrian whiteness were oftentimes used to bolster Armenian claims for whiteness and vice versa. Um, so it's kind of interesting to note that this journal article was written in the summer of 2001, um, prior to 9-11. And it did mention at the end that uh, at the time of, of writing, people with Middle, Middle Eastern ethnicity actually are starting to kind of want to be separated um, from just being white as an umbrella term. Um, this helps for programs that provide assistance for minority communities and also for hate crime laws. And I'm sure the hate crime consideration definitely became very relevant after this article was published um, with 9-11 and the rise in hate crimes there. So um, it was very interesting to read the um, kind of arguments for what makes a community white or ma what makes an ethnic group white. And oftentimes it often has nothing to do with physical appearance and oftentimes has more to do with religion or 
philosophical similarities to um, quote unquote Americans. Yeah. And this was obviously happening within a much sort of vaster context. Now, if you were of one of these ethnic or national groups or religious groups, and you were living in a place that had racial segregation laws within the United States, this would obviously potentially be quite important to your day-to-day life. Uh, In other respects, in other parts of the country, it probably wouldn't have been that uh, significant. But as you said, a lot of this has to do with these sort of philosophical approaches. I think you see something quite similar happen uh, in British-Greek relations over the 19th century as well. Um, and, and of course, beyond the 19th century, as there was a very close relationship there. And um, while Greek identity had previously been tied very closely to, you know, the Orthodox Church, and that still mattered a great deal when it came to relations with the Ottoman Empire, um, but also, you know, uh, tying their identity back to the Byzantine Empire that had fallen, you know, four centuries earlier and so forth, but had once been this, you know, mighty Greek empire with a very sort of, um, you know, multicultural, yes, but profoundly Greek identity, uh, you know, controlling large sections of the Mediterranean. And, the British came in and said, oh, no, 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 no. The connection you're thinking of is to the ancient Greeks of the classical era, you know, the pre-Roman Greeks, you know, Pericles and uh, Aristotle and Plato and and all of those sort of things. And that they really pushed that as like this sort of new Greek identity for this new emergent Greek nationalism, as opposed to something like the Byzantine identity and said, this is, this is the true like uh, Greek identity because you're the cradle of democracy and kind of this really like crafted together this whole narrative about how you could draw some kind of direct line between Athenian democracy and the British, you know, parliamentary system, which is of course absurd. I mean, there's very little in common with that. And you could point to all sorts of other much more recent systems uh, that have much clearer direct lines and influences on the British system uh, than anything from ancient Greece. But this was used to sort of shore up and justify the official state position of Britain with regard to the Greeks. And you see similar processes happening here. And there was, of course, stuff like, um, you know, we could get into the whole uh, France-Lebanon stuff. There was a whole relationship there, which has continued to this day. Um, and of course, you know, was strengthened under the mandatory period, but that preceded this uh, 1920s era. That this was something that even under Ottoman control, there was supposed to be this special relationship between the French and the, you know, folks in in Lebanon, uh, and that was also then, you know, used to make distinctions between Lebanon and Syria, even if those weren't necessarily ethnic distinctions, as you said, Rachel. In many cases at this time period. Uh, they would be religious distinctions. That's obviously a little bit blurrier when you put it into the U.S. context and sort of melt everyone together a little bit more, um, but it still has an effect. It's still very important to the understanding of that narrative, and this is one of these clear examples of something that's like a very bizarre sort of idiosyncrasy of the 1920 census and its proximity to the end of World War One, and something that still is in place today. I mean, you know, as you said, that article is from just before 9-11, and this is something that's always stuck in my mind because I had some sort of a research project, I, I think in fourth grade, um, before 9-11, uh, about sort of Arab-American identity and, you know, whether or not the, you know, 
uh, older sort of assimilationist narratives uh, related to those very long-standing communities dating back to the late 19th century in the United States, especially in places like uh, Boston, um, you know, with the Syrian and Lebanese communities. And of course, then you got adjacent communities of Armenians uh, that were, you know, familiar with those communities and had some common uh, ties, some of them religious, some of them just various geographical and historical ties from the region. Uh, but there was this, you know, also this clear sense among many Arab Americans from much more recent waves of immigration of saying, look, like, I don't know what the deal was that you guys worked out in 1920 to make these Lebanese folks who in some cases were new and Syrian folks, in some cases they were new. And in some cases they'd already been there for 30 years or more. And they're saying, I don't know what this deal was, but you know, I'm from Egypt now, or I'm from Saudi Arabia or I'm from wherever. Right. And this does not map onto my experience in the United States. And of course, some people disagreed with that, right? Some people were totally on board for, you know, sort of an assimilation into whiteness and things like that. Um, but but some people definitely weren't. And that was like an emerging sort of conflict in the 90s and into, you know, the, the pre 9-11 period. Uh, and then, you know, things kind of shifted pretty significantly for a lot of people. But even today, I mean, you know, one of the past uh, hosts of this show uh, was of that heritage. But, you know, I think from a pretty remote extraction at this point, um, and, and, you know, had a very different sort of experience and relationship, uh, to that. And I know there's definitely, you know, cause I know plenty of people from the Boston area that are also of Lebanese heritage and some of them are, you know, they are first generation in the United States, uh, or second generation in the United States. And some of them, uh, their families have been here since the late 19th century and their sort of experience and relationship to whiteness is totally different. And it's, uh, just kind of an odd thing that still has implications today. And you mentioned about various sort of programs and services that can be affected by those sort of things. So I thought that was kind of an interesting um, look into the ongoing impact of this 1920 census. Um, and I don't know if you had any other further comments on that particular point before we move on. Yeah, I did just want to point out that uh, even even this conference of whiteness wasn't really protection. Um, especially in the South, there it, there was definitely that white-black dichotomy, and uh, Syrians just did, and other Arab peoples just didn't really fit into that. So there wasn't really a place for them in in the in the South, really. And so a, there was a story in the um, article about how there was a Syrian and his wife who actually got lynched in South Carolina. So even if they were white according to the government that didn't really there wasn't all the full protection of whiteness at that time um and i'm sure that's definitely that that's obviously definitely the case today um that even that white classification is no protection from uh, racialized violence right and you know this speaks to the sort of weirdness of the racial science and hierarchy stuff that uh, we've both talked about today and that Kelly and I talked about on the main feed episode earlier in the week that some of this was happening at a sort of very elite level, very abstractly and getting very sort of precise with it in a way that's completely unmoored from science. And then some of it was just very casualized at the bottom of, you know, like the day to day level of society and and, you know, not to 
pick on or single out the South uniquely, but of course that's where it's often the most overt and the most clearly codified in this time period, especially uh, if we're talking about at the beginning of the 1920s as opposed to later in the 1920s when you know the Klan is proliferating around the entire country, as we've talked about on previous episodes. But you know, there's stories that you'll hear about, like you know, uh, a lighter-skinned African American man pretending to be from Hindustan, you know, from British India, and oh, I'm actually not African American. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a subcontinental Indian uh, person, and I'm uh, a Hindu uh, religion, and going around the South and getting a totally different reception, not necessarily like a overwhelmingly positive reception uh, per se, or, you know, certainly not being welcomed into whiteness by any stretch, but basically being considered as, okay, uh, we don't know where to put you. We don't know which box to put you in because we've tried to divide the world into black and white and no other categories and everyone else is, you know, not in our part of the country uh, or even part of the world. And sometimes you would have these situations where people just really did not fit into the boxes. Uh, And of course, we would think today, okay, that the answer is to not really be uh, doing it, you know, not not considering it in those ways, um, but still recognizing that there's some need to consider the various uh, boxes because of how people's lives have been affected historically and those legacies and getting them the resources that they need to overcome that. But, you know, the, the, the historical, like, getting really rigid about it and saying, okay, here's our exact sort of racial categorization and the five races and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, pyramid structures and things like that. Like that was completely sort of bananas as well. um, But had this really profound impact on the United States for uh, quite some time. So let's talk a little bit more about some other things regarding this census. One thing that we should note here in passing, and this also gets into the sort of like racial categorization stuff is This was actually the last census before the 1924 Indian Citizenship Act for Native Americans to become U.S. citizens. And we're not going to get into that on this episode because that's a enormous, huge, very complicated, very controversial topic. Um, But I just wanted to note that in passing in terms of discussing these sort of like 1920s uh, emergent um, racial uh, science claims and stuff like that, um, that that was not really factored in on this census, but would subsequently emerge as much more important. Other things that happened in this with this census that are not related to what we've been talking about so far. So the U.S. Constitution requires decennial census enumeration in part for redistributing congressional seats between the states. But notably, after the 1920 census, there was a failure to reapportion districts. And quoting again from the official U.S. Census Bureau Uh, websites, various histories of this particular census. The results of the 1920 census revealed a major and continuing shift of the population of the United States from rural to urban areas. No apportionment was carried out following the 1920 census. Representatives elected from rural districts worked to derail the process, fearful of losing political power to the cities. Reapportionment legislation was repeatedly delayed as rural interests tried to come up with mechanisms that would blunt the impact of the population shift. Congress finally passed a reapportionment bill in 1929. The bill declared that the House of Representatives would be apportioned based on the results of the 1930 census. The 1929 Act provided for an automatic reapportionment by the last method used unless Congress moved proactively to prevent that from occurring. The Act also authorized the 1930 and subsequent decennial censuses. 
Listeners might also know, of course, that the 1929 reform is what capped the total size of the U.S. House of Representatives at 435, creating all kinds of malapportionment problems for the biggest and smallest population states. Uh, the rural to urban shift was also not just a matter of new definitions, since the trend was clear from the 1910 census and the 1900 census, which, as far as I was able to tell, had used the same expansive benchmark for an urban area. There had been other numbers that were thrown around in previous censuses, um, and I did see one source that claimed it had changed in 1910 uh, and then remained consistent after that, um, but the website, the census website itself, uh, uses one number for 1900, 1910, and 1920 to define sort of urbanization. Um, so since 1900, incorporated places were deemed urban based on a minimum population size of just 2,500 inhabitants. By that low threshold, fully 50% of the U.S. population lived in an urban area in the 1920 census, which is a good reminder that before then, the U.S. population was incredibly rural, considering that a majority of the country uh, before 1920 were living in areas with fewer than 2,500 people up until that point. The more familiar modern definition of a metro area did not arrive until the 1950 census, along with the concept of a census-designated place without incorporation, uh, although it wasn't called that until 1980. I know that that's been a challenge. I mean, obviously, we've talked about already how challenging the 1920 census was, and you all know about how challenging the 2021 census was. I guess we'll get into that a little bit more, but did you just briefly want to touch, Rachel, on the situation in Idaho while we're on the topic of trying to enumerate people in rural parts of the country? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so in the 2020 census, um, there have been some some losses and gains uh, in congressional seats. So California, New York, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia each lost one seat. Colorado, Florida, Montana, North Carolina, and Oregon will each gain one seat, and Texas will gain two seats. Um, so we actually experienced a huge amount of growth in the last decade. Um, I believe it's us in Utah had the highest amount or the highest uh, percentage change. Um, Utah is about 18%. We were about 17%. And so I really think that Idaho should definitely have gained a seat. I don't know how that would have changed the calculus exactly, but I really think um, the fact that our population just exploded so much, um, it really seems kind of fishy that we didn't gain a seat. And actually, in some of the projections that uh, independent uh, reviewers um, looked at and, and formulated, they, they actually did predict that we would have gained a seat. So it's actually really surprising that we didn't. And I think a third um, district in Idaho would have made it a lot harder to cut Boise into uh, multiple districts. Because as of right now, Boise is basically cut in half between the two congressional districts. And this is definitely a way to dilute um, liberal power in the state. And so I think it would have been a lot harder to do that. And we could have potentially have had um, one Democrat um, Democratic uh, congressperson in Idaho, but that possibility was pretty much just taken away. So what do you see as the factors here and some of the factors that might parallel kind of the challenges seen in 1920? You know, this was a much more evenly divided urban rural country back in 1920. Um, but 
it seems like in, in Idaho, which is both a rural state and then has this urban core that's been growing rapidly, seeing the real estate go up and so forth. Uh, I mean, as with 1920s challenges, it seems like the immigration stuff ends up being a factor as well, right? Yeah. Um, being a rural state, there are a lot of um, agricultural workers that are undocumented. And uh, I know if there had been a citizenship question, it probably would have really put a damper on um, on our numbers. Uh, and I, I, I think this um, citizenship question Although it was asked in in the 1920s census, it was a lot less fraught at the time. There was a nationalization process that was fairly easy for certain people, but now it's difficult for everybody, basically. Um, and so that that citizenship question really um, changes things. And there was a big fear that participation would be depressed. And I I'm not entirely sure if there's been any analysis of how. Um, how the numbers w were depressed or if they were depressed, uh, because ultimately there wasn't a citizenship question. But I think just having it in the news and circulating was enough to create anxiety around the census. Um, also, the census was supposed to last three months, and it actually got cut off pretty early, or the, the follow-up door-to-door census process um, to... Um, reach people that didn't mail in a census or submit a census online um, was supposed to be three months and it ended up ending early um, mid-October. It was supposed to go to the end of October. So I'm wondering how many people got missed out through that early um, ending of the census process as well. So I, I'm wondering if, um, if some of those factors kind of affected Idaho's response rate and how that potentially affected the apportionment of of congressional districts. I thought it was interesting too. You know, this sort of centennial rhyming of history. The way that uh, the you know this was the first time they had attempted to do the nineteen twenty census on January first. Previously, they had done it, tried to do it in April, and then before that, uh, I think it had been done maybe in the middle of the year. Um, and apparently, one of the reasons they chose to do January was an attempt to get better data on agriculture in this country. Um, they figured, okay, this is like, you know, between harvests, but it's relatively close to a fall harvest and things like that. And they were hoping to get some, uh, some more information on that, which I thought was an interesting sort of parallelism there. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the, the fallow period. So you can catch people when they're not too busy working or, or harvesting or whatever. But in this case, we end up with this really condensed uh, 19, I mean, this in 2020, we end up with this really sort of condensed timetable, um, partly due to the pandemic and, and just did not get the results that we will that we needed to, which is going to have pretty profound effects because uh, everything just sort of ripples out from that enumeration, basically. Right. A lot of federal funding is apportioned to cities and states based on population size. So when people aren't counted, it definitely affects how that funding is spread out and some cities probably won't get the funding that they actually need for the for the base of people that they're trying to help. So while we're on the subject here of uh, some of the states that grew quickly or not, let's go flash back a century to talk about who were the fast growers, who were the big states, etc. Uh, in the 1920 census as compared to the 2020 census. So 
Proportionally from 1910 to 1920, the largest growth was in Arizona, Montana, and California. In absolute terms, the largest growth was in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. Uh, New York, the most populous state, crossed the 10 million resident mark for the first time in the 1920 census. The two next most populous states in 1920 were Pennsylvania and Illinois. Appropriately, the three largest American cities were New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia. And the least populous states were Nevada, Wyoming, and Delaware, a couple that are not too surprising on there. But of course, Nevada has grown a lot in recent years um, as compared to back then. I'm always amazed to see how small the population of Nevada was uh, from not only the time of its admission uh, around the Civil War, but also all the way into this uh, particular time period. Just a very tiny state with very, very few people uh, voting in elections and deciding those three electoral votes from Nevada. Uh, a few other things that are worth mentioning from the statistics, uh, just in light of current discussions with regard to the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. The rapidly growing District of Columbia in 1920 had more residents than eight states, pretty familiar uh, now, and uh, Puerto Rico had more residents than the state of Florida at the time. Of course, this is before the migrations to the Sun Belt and so forth, but I found that to be a uh, sort of startling. Uh, and uh, another point to mention there is to, uh, if you have not heard our episode on air conditioning, the rise of air conditioning and how important that was to the United States, remember that uh, we are talking about a, uh, a, a period in which air conditioning was just starting to emerge even in uh, commercial spaces and, and really in terms of a sort of residential uh, off-the-shelf or uh, you know installation consumer good thing that you could get. Um, we're really talking about mostly sort of po a post-war uh, boom after World War II, um, and that is really sort of the key to unlocking uh, large-scale habitation of place like Florida for Better or worse, and I will leave it at that. Um, any any thoughts on the particular demographic notes uh, in terms of state by state and cities uh, from 1920? Um, I I just want to point out that I think the decision to cap uh, the House of Representatives at 435 is probably one of the worst decisions. <laughs> and it's it's definitely an untenable situation today. I think uh, if there wasn't that cap, it would be easier to um, apportion seats to states that are growing or shrinking in a much more rational way. Um, and tied into that is the District of Columbia, which deserves to, to have a a voting uh, seat in, in the House of Representatives and not just kind of that observational um, non-voting membership. So I, I don't think they foresaw just what the ratio of representatives to people they're representing would balloon into. So I don't think they meant for it to have lasted as long as it has. And it needs to go away as soon as possible. It's interesting. I think the Constitution, I could be wrong on the interpretation of this, but I think the Constitution says that your your minimum size uh, for a congressional district is 30,000 people. I mean, obviously, if it's only one for the whole state and you had a state with less than that, then it's less than that. But in terms of uh, within a state, uh, that you're not supposed to have one that's smaller than 30,000. And of course, we're in many cases, well, well beyond that number uh, for the population. I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of uh, knock-on effects from not making that change. 
Um, there was some sort of Twitter discourse about that um, by some of the world's most annoying commentators a few weeks ago and kind of a lot of whining about, oh, I don't think it would be reasonable to have, you know, a gigantic legislature, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, I think that there's that 30,000 number actually sounds pretty good to me in terms of a ratio of constituents to uh, to members of Congress. I don't know if that's actually a feasible number. It might need to be more like 100,000 or something like that. But I do think that having a much lower number than what we currently have in terms of the ratio of residents to members of Congress would have a lot of very positive effects for our democracy. Uh, for one thing, having a whole bunch more representatives makes a lot less personality-driven stuff feasible. Uh, it, it makes the parties more important, not only in, you know, uh, just that they are, you have to form kind of a party identity of some kind and so forth, as opposed to just everyone individually running uh, for their own, you know, on their own personal basis, which has been the norm for more than half a century at this point. Um, but also just that, uh, you know, like, you, you, if you're one of 435, you can still kind of put your head over the parapet and get yourself on TV and stuff like that. If you're one of like, you know, a thousand, that starts to be a different conversation. Um, if you're kind of an unremarkable backbencher, uh, with bad ideas. Uh, but the other thing is just realistically, um, and this also gets into the sort of role of parties and so forth is that if the, uh, if TV becomes much less dominant, as the mode for getting elected because it's not that useful to advertise for a much smaller, less populous district, uh, then you see a lot less expensive campaigns, a lot more opportunities for people to go out there and meet constituents directly. Um, but, you know, there's a lot less like in individual level fundraising and you would probably have some reforms to gear things more toward party level fundraising and, and expenditures for candidates. Now, there's definitely some very clear downsides to that uh, that you can see from what's happening in the Labour Party right now in the United Kingdom, uh, which has, you know, much, much, much smaller uh, constituencies uh, in terms of the ratio of population to representative. But broadly speaking, I think it's much better. There's a certain level at which it would probably be unreasonable. Um, but in general, having more opportunities for people to actually meet their member of Congress and talk about local issues uh, and get that kind of like help at the federal level, I think could be really important and really beneficial and have a lot of positive effects in the political system. Maybe I'm being a little bit over optimistic about that, but it doesn't really matter since it doesn't seem to be on the table anyway. Uh, a few other points that I thought we should talk about before we wrap up here are just kind of some uh, other tie-ins between the 1920 census and 1920 period and the 2020 census and the 2020 period and 2021 period. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on right now uh, with Israel and Palestine that all dates back to some of the same things that we've already talked about with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire and the League of Nations mandates and so forth. So I'm not going to get too far into that. And, and of course, everyone's familiar with the sort of Syrian civil war stuff uh, that has been happening over the last... Uh, what, seven or eight years or so at this point. And that is, you know, I, we don't need to get f further into that necessarily either um, because people are probably familiar with it. But uh, one that I did want to highlight uh, is is because we've talked several points now about Armenians and Armenian ethnicity is this the situation in uh, Armenia last year, especially when, you know, the American eye was completely off the ball because of everything that was going on with the U.S. elections, and they just did not get involved in 
a, a quite genocidal campaign by the Azerbaijani military and the, the various mercenary forces that it had hired uh, from Turkey and other places. And a lot of that really dates back to this stuff, which was happening. And again, I want to, I think is a good note to close on, underscores the sort of chaotic nature of trying to ascertain people's either immigrant origins or their parents' immigrant origins in the 1920 census. The Transcaucasian Democratic Federative Republic had been proclaimed in April of 1918 and then collapsed by May of 1918. That was, as I alluded to earlier, an attempt to have Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia coexist with one another, especially because you couldn't really neatly divide up the uh, religious and ethnic and linguistic populations and everyone, you know, is a patchwork of communities. Uh, they lasted very briefly uh, and then broke into very short-lived uh, Azerbaijan Democratic Republic and a First Republic of Armenia and a Democratic Republic of Georgia and so forth. And then they were all basically invaded uh, by the Red Army. But that process was happening in 1920. So the census begins at the beginning of 1920. By the end of 1920, if you came from what was Armenia itself, as opposed to the Ottoman territories and so forth, the, the, what, what, the parts that are now Armenia today and were briefly Armenia then, if you said in January 1st, I immigrated here from Armenia or my parents immigrated here from Armenia, that country wouldn't have existed by the end of the year before they had even finished putting together the report on the 1920 census. That's the level of sort of chaotic situation that's going on. And those, of course... Uh, significant, you know, border disputes and and feuding over independence and all that sort of thing ties directly to things that happened just in the last year, a century later. Obviously, also significant stuff that happened in the 1980s and after the breakup of the Soviet Union in the 1990s that more directly relates to what we're talking about today. But like, you can see the seeds of it being planted in this 1918-1920 period and it was just happening as this census was was going on. And of course, the Turkish War of Independence was not over. The Greco-Turkish War was not over. The Russian Civil War was not over. The uh, conflicts over the borders of Poland were still very much ongoing. So there was just so much stuff that was still happening. And it was kind of this incredible effort to try to get this uh, data in. And I guess it's good that they were asking about specific cities and provinces that people had come from or that their parents had come from, because otherwise you just, I mean, you know, the data was already going to be out of date in terms of nationality by the end of the year, um, but we can maybe piece together some information uh, after the fact uh, based on, on that uh, level of data that they asked about. Um, so I just thought this was a sort of really fascinating census and... Um, Rachel, I know this is probably a little bit more out of your wheelhouse than some of these uh, topics, but I think you probably found some of this stuff to be pretty interesting as well during the research process. Yeah, I was definitely not familiar with all of these border disputes happening at the time, of which there were many, many <laughs> disputes happening. Um, so it was interesting to, to kind of learn about that history. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on this week to talk about the 1920 United States Census and some of the uh, modern lingering effects and parallels uh, to the 2020 Census and just uh, other things going on both in the U.S. and the world in 2020 and 2021. Yeah, it's always a pleasure.